And just like that, welcome right into the studio, Hidden Nation. You got Josh Carey, your hidden entrepreneur. You're tuned right into 710 WOR, the voice of New York. Do yourself a favor if you haven't already, because I know so many of you have, download that free iHeartRadio app. What's that going to do for you? Oh, so much. You'll be surprised. For one, you can search and listen to every episode of this very show, the entire back catalog, and every show that you are currently indulging in, plus all kinds of music across every genre. It's the free iHeartRadio app in the App Store. Hidden Nation, I know you. I know who you are and what you like. And I am going to guess, I'm going to make a prediction that you know today's guest. You are aware of today's guest. You probably follow today's guest. It is, of course, Matt Higgins, the author of the new Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard, and Unleash Your Full Potential. Does it sound familiar? I know it does to me. We have so much to cover. Let's get right into it. Matt, so good to have you right here with us. Thanks for having me. I love that intro. I appreciate that. So um, let me just give a quick overview just to orient the listener. We know you're a high school dropout turned law school graduate. You were the youngest press secretary in New York history during 9-11. You were running the business side of two NFL teams before the age of 40. Extraordinary. And your list of credits go on and on, including you were a guest judge on Shark Tank. So I want to start with that. Besides maybe being a great little ego boost, what did you learn most or what most su- surprised you being on the front lines of Shark Tank? Uh, that I could set my sights on something so improbable and then I can manifest it, to be perfectly honest. Like, you know, a lot of people who end up as a guest shark on Star Trek, they have this fake narrative. They're like, oh, they called me and I wasn't sure. I'm like, oh, please. I and Maybe that's true for, you know, Elon Musk or somebody like that. But the reality is that I spent a lot of time wanting to be on that show. I love the show. I watched every episode with my son. And I worked for a year of my life uh, to make the case meetings with because otherwise I'm just a random guy from Queens, you know, with a good resume and spent a lot of time making the case and eventually got the green light. And even at my age, I talk about this in my book, uh, Burn the Boats, even at my age, despite what I've been able to pull off, I dealt with crushing imposter syndrome when I was on that set. And when I tell people that sometimes they're like, Shark Tank, it's American Pie. What would you have to be anxious about? I'm like, you get on that damn set with you know, Mark Cuban and Kevin O'Leary and see how you feel. So there's a great little moment I capture in the book when I was beating myself up about how pathetic I am for feeling out of my depth, despite everything I've done in my career. And um, Damon John, who's also from Queens, uh, any Queens out there, shout out to, uh, you know, I lived on Springfield Boulevard. Damon Jam pulls me aside and I tell him the truth about how freaked out I am. And he goes, you know what, Matt? <clears throat> Forget about all of them. Used a few expletives. <laughs> Says to me, we're two guys from Queens and you belong here because you are here. So it's a long way. And it was very like Socrates, like speaking from thousands of years of wisdom. What, what I love about that point, there is no final arbiter of belonging. So what Shark Tank taught me more than anything is you could pick the most improbable goal, no matter where you started, and you could pull it off and even surprise yourself. So you, I love the word manifested, you said. So you're into that. You believe that. How do you apply that 
in your life? Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point of the book, right? So the book, the book takes a very simplistic title, which goes back to the beginning of history. For those mm-hmm. who don't know this, you may have heard it from Cortez in 1519, but the reality is, and the book goes through it, goes back to Sun Tzu and the art of war, like uh, 500 BC. So what fascinates me is like, why is it that military leaders know intuitively and every culture has a story that the way to get the most about from yourself is to give yourself no other option but to succeed, to actually sabotage, retreat, and yet our parents our teachers, everyone tells us the opposite, that it's prudent to conjure back a plan. And I wanted to see, does science bear that out? And what science confirms is actually the mere contemplation of a backup plan does two things. It makes you less motivated to achieve the goal and much less likely that you're going to. And when I started looking back at my improbable, sometimes Forrest Gump-like career, I realized the way I was able to achieve everything I've ever done is to put myself in situations where I didn't have the answer exactly and trust my intuition that I had what it takes to compete. So in writing this book, I wanted to take this manifesto and appropriate it for the risk adverse, the anxiety laden, the shame ridden like myself from my poverty background, anybody who's got baggage and say, you could be a risk taker too. You have just been conditioned to believe otherwise. Hidden Nation, check out Amazon or wherever you get your books, Burn the Boats, a 4.8 rating currently with over 650 reviews. Um, I currently read it and I'll say read it in quotes because I'm an audiobook guy, Matt, and I love the audio version of the book. Thanks. For, it's just so easy, right? You know how easy that could be. So that was my consumption of the book. I want to talk about- Thank you. The- I did it myself, by the way. Very uncomfortable, but I did it. I was glad I did. You did. That's excellent. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about one of the early chapters in the books. In the book talks about why people- put us down. I have a concept that I promote called the art of looking foolish. And it's very similar to what you talk about, where it's like, you're going to find yourself doing so many things, big, medium, and large in life that people are just going to laugh at, ridicule, and tear down. And I love in one of the early chapters, you go through systematically why people do that. Can you review some of those? They're Yeah, I, well, so I, Whenever you are, well, one, let's talk about imposter syndrome for half a second. Imposter syndrome is just a feedback loop, right? That you're doing something new. You have no neural networks, right? So for you, you are shaky because you are technically an imposter, at least an interloper, right? I was an interloper on the set of Shark Tank. So when you begin to step out, a few things happen to the universe around you as you disrupt the atoms in the air, right? There's an energy release. Number one, um, you make people uncomfortable. Because if they're not pushing outside of their own boundaries, you are confronting them with their own hesitation. And when people are confronted with their own reticence or reluctance, what do they do? They lash back and they need to confirm that it's not safe. And they become an agent of convention because they need you to fail. I know it sounds so psychological, but I tried to give voice to these things that are almost imperceptible in the book. That is an absolute phenomenon. Anyone listening to this can recognize, you know, I kind of suspected that my frenemy was cutting me down because they didn't have the courage to start their own business. And now they're trying to put me. So that's a common one where people feel threatened by your courage and they need you to fail, not out of, um, not out of malice, but out of the need for confirmation because it's so disruptive to their own worldview. So I talk a lot in the book, and this is true. Again, I'm not Mother Teresa, but the way I'm able to deal with the naysayers is unending empathy. 
I try to approach it like, oh, you must feel so bad about your own journey that you have to devote even a nanosecond to trying to undermine my self-worth so that I fail to confirm you staying there. So the most important reflective exercise I would tell your audience to ask, who puts you in a box? Is it your boss? Is it your spouse? Is it your frenemy? Or is it really you self-centering in anticipation of the judgment you're going to be received when you decide to stretch the bounds of what you're capable of? The reality is we put ourselves in a box. It's usually not your boss. It's anticipation that puts you in a box. So I go through the different reasons, but it all begins from a place of empathy and seeking understanding. Like, why are you trying to do that? And really to transcend above whatever energy is being directed my way. The reason or one of the reasons this hit so strongly for me is because, you know, my personal brand is the hidden entrepreneur because exactly that I spent 40 plus years of my life hiding, showing up in every situation, hiding my true talent, my true ability in exchanging for seeking approval. And what I say is that I didn't want to rock the boat. I didn't want to make you feel uncomfortable by what you're capable of doing. So I just, I just hid and I didn't. So it's exactly that. I have first hand. I talk, no, I understand. Look, I still, I still have to calibrate because I think when you're a little bit charismatic and you have certain charisma skills, very easy to dismiss those, right? And they become a little bit confronting to somebody who maybe doesn't or resents it or thinks you're a fake because there you, you can go. talk to 60,000 people on the lawn of Central Park or wh- wh- whatever it is. So I still have to calibrate. I talk in the book about tall poppy syndrome, which is an Australian phrase where, you know, you the poppy, you don't want the poppy to stand too, too tall or it gets cut out if you're not, you know, creating a perfect line. So I like, I think anyone out there, one of the first things you need to embrace, honestly, is your own potential because other people aren't going to do it for you, right? No one's going to invite you to, for a seat at the table. So how do we overcome this, right? We can hear about what's happening. We can uh, agree that it is happening. But what did you have to take? What steps did you have to take to say, oh my gosh, I got to, I got to live up to my fuller potential here? Uh, great question. I think in the book, I attempted to pull back the curtain and demonstrate that most success happens in spite of, not because of. My success is in spite of anxiety, shame, all the issues. And I think once you begin to accept that, I'm getting to the point, mm-hmm. you realize, oh, this inadequacy, self-identified inadequacy or shortcoming is not evidence that I'm not entitled to reach some potential that I suspect. It's actually the thing I have to transcend because we all do. So I think the the only thing we could do is be very open about what our in spite of's are. You and I, you you talk about your whole show is branded around your in spite of, right? The hidden entrepreneur. I'm here, I'm doing this radio show in spite of the fact that for whatever psychological reasons I felt the need to hide, right? I'm here in spite of the legacy of shame that I carried from growing Right. And that is the only answer I've come up with. Let's commiserate. I always say I have to asterisk the hell out of my book just because I think I have some of the answers doesn't mean I know how to apply them. And one of the disservices that is wrought by self-appointed gurus on Instagram is that we don't make our struggles contemporary. We act like we have the answers figuring out and we're going to stand on top of the mount and deliver a sermon and tell you the answers, right? No, I don't think that's true. I still struggle two steps forward, one step back. So the, the long answer is to say we need to collectively commiserate about the things that we have to do are in spite of so that other people feel permission to dream about their full potential and not feel weighted down by whatever it is they have to overcome. Can you give us an example? You've used the term a few times in spite of what does that really mean? What is, how does it apply? 
I, I think, I think, well, let's talk about the words, I am not a risk taker. I think actually those words are very insidious and they creep into somebody's identity, especially if they're installed by a parent. Oh, you're not a risk taker. <clears throat> Everyone is a risk wanter because we know that on the other side of risk is reward. And so when you begin to use those words, I am not a risk taker, those are your in spite of's, right? Like whatever is underlying, well, it's because I get unca unco you know, uncomfortable in public speaking. Uh, it's because I feel like I don't have the pedigree to be my own business owner. Whatever it is that are the things, the metaphorical boats that beckon you to retreat from your own ambition, those are your in spite of's. And I think by sharing whatever it is we all have to overcome, not just in the rear view mirror, but now, what do we have to overcome? It gives people a new way to look at themselves. Like, oh, I could still be a risk taker, even though I'm anxious. I could still be a risk taker, even though I don't feel like I have all the credentials, right? That's what in spite of are all about. My book is a little bit of a Trojan horse. I have this like, what would almost look like a pagan symbol of a burning boat. You believe it's going to be bombastic, burn the boats and screw everyone else. And you re read it and you realize it's the total opposite. The boat is a metaphor for all the things that beckon us to retreat from our ambition. Wow. You've also used hey, the word. Let me fire it up. So yeah. I love this conversation. Yeah. Thanks. Me too. Let's talk about the word shame you've used. What are you or were you um, in shame of? I think, I think uh, in shame, I was technically born into shame. I was taking care of my mother living on government cheese and living in a roach motel, a dirty roach motel that was literally crumbling into the ground. I was sleeping on a dog worn mattress on the floor I'd become completely disassociated from my, my, it was so traumatic that I felt like I wasn't there anymore. I was like, I'm, 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 I'm here, but I'm not of here anymore. And so a lot of my formative years were spent hiding the circumstances that happened behind closed doors. Yeah. I, I got the, I sold flowers on street corners. So I had enough money to buy Jordache jeans. I'm dating myself or yes, <laughs> jeans. but I did whatever it would take to conceal. When you conceal for such a big part of your life, my mother passed away the morning I became press secretary, right on the precipice of finally having enough money to, to take care of her, but take care of me. She died at uh, 10 o'clock that morning. That's a lot of years spent in shame. It takes a lot of time to shed that identity. And so my shame is the shame, if that makes sense, that I'm still laboring with all that, unable to save my mother. No no upbringing. I, to the day, I still can't figure out why we why we need two two forks at the dinner table. You know what I mean? Like, wait, which one is my water? You know, like these little things. Like, I, I'll tell you something. I don't open the mail because I spent so many years where the, the mail only delivered bad things, like red remittance notices. That I, to this day, do not open mail. I haven't opened mail in years because I'm still freaked out by it. I'm. It's kind of funny to share that, but I'm sharing it because somebody out there is like, "Oh man, I still have those things too." Th those are our shame. Those. Um, little elements of shame make us feel ill-equipped to strive. That's what I'm talking about. When, when you're on the precipice, like sitting on the stage of Shark Tank, or I teach at Harvard Business School, right? I go from a high school dropout to teaching at Harvard Business School. Those little things beckon you to retreat. Those are the metaphorical boats. So the, that is my fabric of shame that I grew up with. Hidden Nation, you're tuned into my conversation with Matt Higgins, the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Burn the Boats. Go to Amazon or wherever you get your books or on uh, the audio platforms, too. That was my consumption of choice. Matt, you are actually, you have a great claim to fame with VaynerMedia, right? I don't want to ruin it, but give us some of the claim to fame. 
in that angle. So, so VaynerMedia is Gary Vaynerchuk's company, those who don't know. Uh, and so I was at the New York Jets overseeing the business of the team. And Gary is a crazy uh, Jets fan. Uh, I had Gary's dream job, just not Matt's dream job. And he had this aspiration to buy the team. And when you're running a sports team, the the business is basically selling tickets and suites, uh, mm. right? That's what you're supposed to do. And my team was like, hey, this is guy Gary Vaynerchuk. He says he's going to buy the Jets. I'm like, what are you talking? He like has a U- YouTube channel. Like, no, 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 no. Will you help us close a deal with him? I'm like, he's not going to buy a suite. First of all, he doesn't have the money. Second of all, he ain't buying the Jets. Third of all, he looks absolutely bat-ass crazy. Uh, <laughs> and so, so anyway, long story short, I'm like, fine, because that's what you do. And I met Gary in a bagel store. And I love that this is an epic meeting, sliding doors moment. First this is 2009, right? First 10 minutes, he's gesticulating and cursing. And I'm like, this guy's out of his mind. The second 10 minutes, though, Gary starts painting a picture for how the world is going to look like. And I'm always constantly meditating on pattern recognition in the future. And he starts talking about how everybody is going to be Comcast, HBO, and The Sopranos in one place on their phone. We're all going to be content creators and distributors, right? And that's going to unlock a whole new way in which we all relate to the world. And companies are not going to be able to keep up. Me and my brother, AJ, once he finishes college, we're going to create a new advertising agency called VaynerMedia, right? Like, And I was like, wow, he is probably tremendously underestimated, but he sees the future and it resonates with me. And we cut a deal at that table. I said, I'll give you eight Jets tickets if you could turn us into the number one team in social media and you could take one of our players and make that player but undeservedly high profile. And by the way, can you make me the guy who gets it in sports? You know, and that was my, my transaction with him. And that's what we did. I became the first customer of VaynerMedia. Uh, and then years later with my partner, Steve Ross, when acquired uh, uh, 40% of the firm. And it's now the largest independently owned social media agency on planet Earth which is kind of amazing. I mean, I don't know the moral of that story other than like a victory lap. I guess it's like, it's at the end of the day that you can become a lot more successful betting and marveling at the greatness of others than you can just betting on yourself. And that was a revelation to me. As a loner who was left fighting, I always say I was raised by wolves, right? You know, you develop like an attitude, like, you know what? I don't need anyone. I don't I don't wanna. And then eventually you you transition and realize it's a lot better to bet on other people than just bet on yourself. I think the other moral of the story is nowhere on your one sheet does it suggest you're 40% owner of VaynerMedia, which is significant yeah. in and of itself, but it's not there. That's a good point. If I'm being really honest, and now we're talking to a whole group of people why that's the case. Like, I love Gary. He's my brother. I think I've helped in, in, in minor ways along the way. But the reality is that firm is 100% Gary Vaynerchuk. It is not 40% Matt Higgins <laughs> and Steve Ross. It's not. Yeah, And like, and just being honest, like if I got hit by a car tomorrow, it's still VaynerMedia. If I got hit by a car seven years ago, it's still there. You know, this is Gary's thing and he's done an amazing job. So I'm very careful not to wear that. Right. And he yeah. is truly my brother. I love him to death. So I actually think it, if I amplify that a little bit too much, it's an attempt to deal credit for something that doesn't belong to me. How modest and fascinating. And I know it is authentic because. Yeah, it's how I feel. I mean, there's no, no yeah. spin. Oh, that's a real nice thing to say. It's just the truth. Yeah. I don't like taking that which doesn't belong to me because then also I fought for what does belong to me. Right. And so I don't want to take anything that doesn't really belong to me. And I don't believe that I am responsible for the success of that company. What does belong to you? This book, this journey, the ability to synthesize going through really hard things. And the humility and honestly, to pull back the curtain, I'll give you an example. 
going on Shark Tank, if you watched me on the first episode of Shark Tank, you would watch that and conclude, you may not like me. You may think that, why does it, why did he get on that show? You can cut me down, but you would not say that I did not belong there. And you would not conclude that I wasn't worthy of competing. You would say, man, that guy's probably a natural at TV. What belongs to me is the choice to tell the truth about what I was dealing with behind the scenes that I never needed to share because I thought it was more useful to relate to Matt Higgins as the guy who felt he couldn't compete on Shark Tank than the guy who looks like he obviously did. And I think that belongs to me. The, the fact that I am choosing to take my improbable narrative of going to the top of five different industries, top of Harvard, Shark Tank, two NFL teams, right? I have a billion dollar consumer portfolio and share the sausage making as opposed to the sausage. And the reason why I became so convicted about it, I was talking to a bunch of students at um, a homeless shelter who were going and getting their GED. And I remember going in the room and I was wearing my suits and you know I show up a certain world, well articulate. I'm like, what do you think of me? And they're like, ah, you rich, you in the suits and like you're on Shark Tank, but you got a plane and all this kind of stuff, right? And I tell the story of my life in much more cringy detail than I would share in this book or in this interview. And everyone starts crying. And I said, can you imagine what's gonna happen when you are interviewing for a job and that future employer knows that you got a GD while in a home or homeless shelter because your parents rejected you because of your, your sexual orientation. And you fought through that rejection and you bettered yourself when you didn't know where your next meal was coming from. That is going to be very powerful. Connecting with people based upon how I got here as opposed to why I'm here is way more value. I own that because that is a choice and not everybody makes that choice. And so that gets me excited. The reason why I wrote the book is every day I wake up to a DM from somebody like, man, I didn't expect to read that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, and I love it. Like there are pages in a book. I'm no, no joke. I cannot read one. I cringe. I can't believe I put it in there. And two, it's just too raw for me. But I think I, I think I own that. I own this. I own this journey of this book. And you're clearly loving every minute of it. I see the pictures of you on tour with the book and the signings and meeting the readers and the fans. And you can see you're just beaming. Yeah, no, I am because it feels useful. Like, come on, we're all dying, right? And we don't know when, but we are. And I had cancer. And so I got to, you know, I get to have at least a slight interaction with my maker, at least in my mind. Mm. We had a conversation about what matters. Wow. And so- like if I look at the ROI on any given activity in a given day, imagine you wrote a book that caused somebody to cross the threshold and embrace their full potential. And they tell you that the book was not the genesis, but the catalyst to cross the threshold. I'm never the genesis. I don't install the idea, but I do hold up a mirror to somebody's potential. Imagine getting that DM. I would do anything in this world to have that be my life story that I inspired somebody to embrace their full potential. I feel like I'm making sense out of a lot of the pain that I experienced as a young kid, watching your mother die, being unable to save them, feeling abandoned. It all makes sense now because I think we have a fundamental choice when we go through hard things. Am I going to interpret that experience by saying, hey, no one gave me this. I'm going to deny it to others, right? No one did anything for me. So I'm, well, I'm not going to, I'm going to basically not deny other, or am I going to supply that which was denied to me because I realized how powerful its presence would have been? Am I going to supply empathy to somebody who feels power, powerless? Am I going to write a scholarship to a single mother? Because I know what it means to be a single mom and try to raise your kids to get an education. So for me, I chose the latter path. I'm going to attempt to supply that which was denied to me. And that is how I use the book. And that is why I am beaming, you know, because it's incredibly gratifying. 
so like I keep referring to, your resume is completely uh, impressive and relevant. Um, and yet through everything, it seems like the simplicity of the book, and I don't say that to take away to anything that went in, but there is a simplicity to a book versus all the other accomplishments, um, at least on paper from the outside looking in, yet it's the book that seems the most, whatever I'm saying, the most, the, the biggest gift you're giving others? Yeah. All or the other things. things. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't think the other things matter nearly as much as attempting to create a piece of art that would make somebody cross that threshold of, of believing in themselves. Right. So I, I agree with you, by the way, it's inherently simplistic because it's meant to be assimilated. Right. That is one of the hardest parts about writing a book. I teach at Harvard business school. I have a law degree. I, I geek out all the time. You know, if I wanted to write an exercise in self aggrandizement, I would use a range of vocabulary that nobody would be like, and I'm like, well, that's terrific. Nobody read my book. A lot of engineering went into it. So I, it's funny. I love that we're talking about this. I guess objectively, some of the other credentials are cooler. And we could talk about NFL teams. I ran the Dolphins. I ran the Jets. I just don't think it even holds a candle to doing something that inspires somebody else to make a move. I really do. Again, I could care less about the credential, the Wall Street Journal bestseller. That helps conversion, honestly. Right. A-B testing. It makes people buy it. I do not care. And I do not care about the accolades. I do not care about the credentials. And I do not care about the logos I've collected. I care about how to how to combine all of them into a narrative that makes somebody else believe they could do some version of that. That is amazing. That is useful. So aside from um, becoming a 40% investor in VaynerMedia or uh, obtaining a $1 billion consumer portfolio or running two NFL teams, the listener can write a book and impact, right? Yeah. What does that take? What does it take to do the book? Yeah. For the, for oh, the listener. That's, that's a great question. I think the book has been successful because I followed one person's advice, which was intuitive to me, but it took, it took uh, editing, which is always keep the reader at the center of the journey. Always make the book in service of the reader and ask yourself, what is this sentence meant to do for the reader, not for you? And I think a lot of books, especially written by successful business people, are exercise in victory laps. Like they masquerade as an attempt to teach you something, but the reality is it's to teach you how great I am. Mm. And I really tried to, to, to hem closely to the idea the book is meant to illustrate in as many different ways as possible. What does it take to fully commit to your plan A? And let me show you the ways in which Scarlett Johansson and Rex Ryan, all these amazing people I've had an opportunity to, to support. Let me show you the metaphorical boats that held them back and what happened when they let go. So my advice to anybody who wants to write a book, don't write a book because you think your story is so damn interesting. Because one, nobody cares, truth, truthfully. But two, uh, write a book because you feel like there's something illustrative about what you know and what you've been through or what you see, and then framing it a way that's meant to deliver value to the reader. I approach my Harvard class the same way. I want those students to walk out there and 5X their tuition based upon my class. And I want somebody to read this and be like, wow, I mean, it doesn't, what I paid for, it doesn't even come remotely close. I think most books don't do that. And I'm not being critical. I think a lot of people write a book because, for the credential, which to me sounds so silly. Anybody can write a book. Or they write a book for the victory lap, which seems like a waste of emotional energy because nobody really cares. 
Absolutely fascinating. Uh, I'm kind of saddened. We have to leave it here. But as that saying goes, don't cry because we have to part. Smile because we had the experience. Matt Higgins, I am beaming because we had this experience. Thank you so much for being you and sharing everything you are and everything you know with us. Well, thanks so much for having me. Everybody out there, if you read Burn the Boat, send me a DM. I read all of them. I want to hear what you think. Thank you. Absolutely incredible. Well, there you go, Hidden Nation. I'm sure I didn't disappoint with my top of the uh, episode promise here. It is Matt Higgins. Go check out, if you haven't already, Burn the Boats, available anywhere. You can pick up a book or listen to it on the audio platform. Uh, We're going to do it again before too long. I want to thank you for tuning in. Remember, it's about getting yourself out there. If nothing else, this episode supported that, didn't it? Live up to your full potential. potential. There are going to be naysayers. You know that. So the goal is to figure out how to do what you know you want to do, could do, and should do in spite of, see how it all comes together, in spite of all that. Again, thank you for tuning in. I know there's a lot here. I can't wait to see you again and do it again. Until we meet again, take care. Be well.